Men rising up to end the silence around us about the chains that bind us, to dispel the darkness of illusion with luminous spiritual technologies, to finally become the hero within us all. This is Arise, the Honest Man's podcast. I am Karun Avatar Das. With me is Jai Jagannath Prabhu, as per usual, my dear co-host. And today we have a highly qualified, very experienced, most esteemed guest with us, <laughs> uh, Rasanath Prabhu. Um, so, he, you know, Rasanath Prabhu, he was actually just telling us that uh, this is the very first time that he's going to be sharing this story uh, in in a public setting in this way. So it, it may just be the case that many many of you with us today uh, don't have, or whenever you hear this, um, are not familiar with Rasanath Prabhu. So I'll just give you a bit of his background. Truly, a a, a very um, a very impressive resume, I must say. Um, <laughs> I've worked hard on this. Worked hard. <laughs> <laughs> so Rathanath is invested in using his knowledge of corporate systems and culture to transform the way the work world operates. Rathanath Prabhu started his professional career in strategy consulting at Deloitte in the year 2000 uh, and then worked as an investment banker for Bank of America from 2006 to 2008. He then, very interestingly, uh, spent four <laughs> years in a monastery during which time he co-founded his organization Upbuild, which is a leadership development company focused on building cultures of trust in organizations. Very interesting that that's the emphasis and also something that we will unpack, Prabhu. So Rasanath brings a unique blend of high-intensity corporate experience and monastic inner work, which is very unique, to his workshops and coaching. He coaches numerous leaders across multiple uh, verticals ranging from hedge funds to tech, to tech startups. And then Rasanath has also been profiled in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, CNN, and PBS. He's got a bachelor's in engineering from the very prestigious Indian Institute of Technology, or IIT, and then also has an MBA from Cornell. So certainly a very qualified uh, person, personality who's with us today. And um, yeah, we're, we're very honored to have you, Peru. Thank you so much for coming, gracing us with your presence. Thank you indeed. We want to start with your story um, from investment banker to ashramite monk for four years to discovering your business while you're in the ashram. That's just like kind of far out. Um, I have to say your story did extend quite beyond you because I was living in Chicago in the ashram at the time. And we heard about you joining the ashram. And I remember being particularly astonished because, I mean, not that you should share this, but this was what we were told. You were making bank. <laughs> like, you were making like a lot of money and some figures were given to us at that time. And then for you to like let go of that and enter into an ashram, I was pretty astonished and impressed by that. Um, and then to discover your business inside the ashram. So I, I want to start with that story. It's just a little bit of fascinating. From the investment banker part to what motivates you to, it's not easy to let go of a bank like that <laughs> and then join an ashram and then discover your business. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, it's... Uh, 
<laughs> suffering makes you do things that you think you wouldn't do otherwise. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I can honestly say, so I wanted to work on Wall Street since I was 13. Wow. Uh, the, 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 I guess, uh, if you could call it inspiration, uh, came from, uh, uh, so I grew up in India, I grew up in Mumbai, and I grew up in a very interesting time in India where uh, India was making a transformation from what was traditionally socialist to a more capitalistic way of seeing things. Mm. Um, opened up its economy to foreign investment. And one of the biggest things that came to India at that time was TV. <laughs> <laughs> so we had access to, I grew up, uh, I grew up watch, watching a lot of American television. Um, and I, you know, somehow I had a fascination for it. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the earliest things that caught my attention was the movie Wall Street. Uh, mm. no, uh, um, what I heard was the original purpose of the movie was to show what happens to people <laughs> who work on Wall Street. But, uh, but I felt very inspired by <laughs> I no. took a very different lesson. Uh, let's say my young, impressionable mind um, felt like, well, that's the place that I'm meant to be. Mm. So um, I did make my way there, uh, you know, fast forward. 14 years later, um, and uh, right before I had my banking offer. So I had already met the devotees before that. Um, and the I had this interesting juxtaposition of ambition and uh, knowing that at some point in time in my life, it will all be taken away. And I didn't know what to do with that feeling. Mm. But there was just so much inertia around the ambition coming from perhaps my past life, from the samskaras that I had gained in this life, that the uh, that the winds, the tailwind behind the ambition was just so strong. Hmm. Uh, but there was this schizophrenic uh, internal side to me that also I find that happens a lot amongst devotees. Anyway, just putting it out there. <laughs> it's true, and I also think that that's why that's why we. Uh, you also become devotees in the hope of solving this. Mm. What I realized is when I became a devotee, the schizophrenia just increased. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it becomes even trickier. That's <laughs> <laughs> precisely what happened to me, too. Right. Uh, and somehow we convey the message that we we feel like you've solved it, <laughs> but the reality is, is we get sucked more into it. Uh, mm. uh, there's a term for it too. Uh, it's called spiritual schizophrenia. Um, mm. You have read Anton Bison or heard Ravindra Shrupa speak about uh, in in his uh, in his series, The Cure of Souls, which again was a very inspiring part of this entire journey that I've had. Uh, he talks about this term, spiritual schizophrenia, and what what it what it leads, what it leads to, it's calling us into a, a deeper place. Mm. So I was experiencing some bit of that, but not knowing, I didn't have the vocabulary, the words, uh, or even the emotional strength to um, to explain it or express it articulately. Um, uh, and then in 2005, just before I was about to step into this world that I had so longed, so long. Uh, 
uh, long yeah. for. Right. Uh, I had a near-death experience. I had a very uh, crazy uh, experience while I was uh, visiting a hospital for a regular checkup. This was at Cornell University. And uh, I, through the process, I recognized I had a condition called, uh, it, is, uh, it is in, in regular terms, it's called a, a vasovagal reaction. It's a reaction that when uh, the, the body perceives some sort of an external attack of sorts or some sort of sharp pain, uh, the entire body starts to shut down as an auto response. Oh my God. You can't predict, you can't predict when it will happen. Uh, but it does happen, and I've had at least two other episodes after that. It's Whoa. just that you know what it is now, so you uh, you you just you just kind of like okay, I just have to walk through this kind of response. But at that time, I didn't know what it was. And uh, yeah, so, you know, my body started to shut down. Uh, this was a regular blood test, and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, I think I went. I went brain dead for very, very like I collapsed literally, and and um, I found myself on a stretcher and in a paralyzed condition for four hours. Dang! And that was a pretty, uh, it was a big wake up call. Um, I would say, uh, and it really had me ask, well, what am I really doing with my life? <laughs> Nothing like a little death to make you ask that question. <laughs> a little flirt with death. Yeah, uh, and I've, I've, uh, I've theoretically, uh, I had questions about death and dying, which is what brought me to Krishna consciousness. But this was, this was a second reminder, mm. that closer to home. And so, uh, but then the inertia, right, of this ambition, and uh, it makes us forget all of these things. I didn't forget the experience, thankfully, and I prayed that I never forgot it. I, I continue to pray that way. But what it did was it actually widened the schizophrenia. <laughs> it, it, uh, so there is the wind coming in this direction of the ambition. Right. And there is this really questioning, the side of me that's really questioning, well, what am I doing? But helplessly questioning because I don't know what would be a... Uh, what would the be positive a, alternative. Yeah, really, because I didn't know of anything else. I had lived my life, right? Mm. So uh, I made a decision to actually live in the ashram, which like, I was very closely associated with in New York at that time. And uh, while simultaneously working uh, on Wall Street. So I did that for two years. The ashram was, the, was my home. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the biggest experiences from that is uh, you don't get enough validation from either side. So you still don't know where you belong. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I was hoping that it would be better, but it, it really was. <laughs> right. So in the bank, you're considered to be this person who is like, you know, doesn't drink, doesn't go to strip clubs, just like, you know, like what's up with this guy, right? Like, uh, people, you know, people are talking behind your back. Mm. You're never truly considered a banker, although I did my best. I had the steel strap watch, I had the square shoes, I, I did everything possible. The Brooks Brothers shirt, everything possible. Uh, but you still don't show up <laughs> that way. And in the ashram, it's a very different thing. Oh my God, like, you know, wow, like so much materialism. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
so I, uh, no, no sufficient validation either place. So you kind of feel like you can belong. In, but, mm -hmm. but I think that journey was very essential for me to resolve this internal strife. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so the, the, the strife was, was real. Mm. Uh, and it was an inner battle of like what what did I want to choose? Um, and so during that time, uh, those two years in the banking world, uh, uh, I saw a lot. <laughs> it was also the time when you know the economy crashed, two thousand. Mm. Oh, true. Uh, I saw the I saw the high. Two thousand six was the peak. Going into two thousand seven was. I mean, from a point of view of salaries and what people are making, it was just, it was just insane. I, I have to sign a piece to accept the offer. I was paid sixty thousand dollars just to like put a sign on the. Oh ship. my god! It was great. It was just unprecedented, like times really. Um, and you know that makes you feel like you've done something, you've achieved something. The ego feels very, very good. Mm. Um, but then when I stepped in. Um, uh, it was suffering. It was real suffering. I saw, uh, I saw the emptiness. Experienced the emptiness <laughs> myself, uh, and uh, also the, the the amount of fear, comparison, the stress that were generated when somebody made, you know, you made two hundred and fifty thousand, somebody made two seventy five, and <laughs> your, your stock price just fell to zero. Uh, <laughs> That's the visceral feeling. Wow. And uh, uh, it was, uh, it was, I had to really take a very hard look um, at my own life and the choices that I had made and the suffering that I was going through when I was in banking. And that's what finally eventually led me to uh, my last project. <laughs> I must say this my last project for. For in investment banking was uh, <laughs> anyway. I'm just outing myself. This was to take Playboy private. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and it was a choice to actually uh, like you are given a project and you you, you don't say no. Um, um, and it, it was pretty brutal, especially for someone who has uh, yeah who had taken vows of you know. Uh, <laughs> Celibacy, <laughs> right. uh, but people didn't understand. It was uh, I had one of my colleagues who, when I was working on the project, came to my cubicle and said, "How come you like you get to work on the good projects?" And you know, like <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like you don't people don't understand what the suffering that I was going through didn't mm. understand thing that I was going through. But fortunately, Krishna was uh, through that suffering really. Uh, Help me make a choice. <laughs> Yo, this story became way more interesting than I could have ever imagined. <laughs> okay, so, so then what you was into the ashram? That was, you made that choice, and so how do you go from being in the ashram for four years? I think you said four years, uh, and and then from there discovering a business with an <laughs> ashram. I mean, I'm sure that didn't help your the accusations of materialism. <laughs> um, I. I also just want to add. I just want to add to that, Prabhu. Like, you know, wh what was the, what was kind of like that critical point where, because you were saying how, you know, you were taking like a hard look 
at the choice you'd made where you were at, right? And your final project was the Playboy thing. And then like, what was the point where you really came to, you know, that, that critical point of like, okay, I, I need to shift. I need to shift this. Um, so a, a bunch of, uh, you know how when Krishna is sending you a message, he, he sends it. He sends it again. It's a build up. And, and um, <laughs> people ask me this question, when was that critical point? There was no background music when it happened. Like there was no, there was no like okay, and like finally, like this is the this is the moment of decision. It wasn't like that actually. It was a build up, mm. um, and then you hear these messages that are just being you know repeated to you. Um, so, so one of the one of my biggest fears of joining the ashram was uh, uh, alongside giving up all that I had worked towards. Um, not not just the money. The money was just one part of it. It wasn't uh, emotionally. That was not the part. The part was the the image of success, mm. the, um, um, and and alongside that was also. I knew I would break my parents' heart if I did something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really close to my parents. No, oh, okay. Also, and uh, I grew up in a very loving, very caring household. Um, so that was a that was a pretty big uh, thing as well for me. So there were other fears that were holding me back, mm. um, and then there was this calling, <laughs> too. So uh, to me, some of the repeated messages were. Uh, uh, I remember coming back from work one evening in 2008, and Sachinandan Swami was visiting. Uh, you know, very appropriate. He just did an episode with, Mar with Maraj. And uh, I remember going into the ashram really late at night. Maharaj had given a program. Everybody was asleep, and Maharaj had used the bathroom and was coming out. And I uh, entered through the door, and we saw each other. And he, he, you know, how he's like, you know, he does this. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> he called me, and he looked into my eyes, and he said, he said, blessings are the winds that blow on the sails of ships and take them to to places where they otherwise wouldn't go wow wait can you repeat that blessings are the winds that blow on the sails of ships and take them to directions that they would otherwise not go wow uh, and, and that's all he said that night. But it was just, it was, uh, it was one of those things that really, I feel like uh, there were blessings coming in many different ways through instructions, through desires, through other people encouraging me, and then the suffering all coming together to then finally like realize, okay, this is, it's clear what Krishna is saying. This is, uh, this is what I, I need to do. Wow. This. Wow. Far out. Okay, so now you're in the ashram for four years. Um, the spiritual schizophrenia is expanding, I, I assume, because I know it very well on a visceral level. And um, somehow you go from there to getting an inspiration to start a business while in the ashram, your upbuild business. So how does that come to be? Yeah, and I also just want to ask, just to clarify, Prabhu, you were, you were in the ashram working as a you were like working as a banker still at on Wall Street, but you were in the ashram for two years, right? Yes. And then 
did you then leave your job as an investment banker and continued staying in the ashram, but now you're committed in a full-time yes, capacity, yes, right? Yes, okay, yes. okay, okay, okay. So okay. I had a, between the banking and uh, joining the ashram, I had to work a small, I had to work another job so that the visa situations and everything get sorted out. But mm. uh, that was a placeholder. And then, yeah, I joined, I joined full-time. Okay. So 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 then back to Jai's question, like how? Okay, so then you so, get introduced at some point. The enneagram comes into the picture. Well, that was a, that, that was uh-huh. a journey too. Um, so my my first contact with the enneagram, um, and for those of you who don't know the enneagram, it's a, on a very broadly, simply put level. The enneagram is, you could call it a personality typology, but it's much much more than that. Um, uh, it uh, it is a, it's a framework that really helps us understand our egos in a very specific, tangible way, and shows the repeated patterns that uh, that really make us forget um, our original identities as souls and our relationship with Krishna. So mm. uh, that's a that's a a very brief introduction to the. We'll Indian. come back to that. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. Sure. I also I also want to ask a question in relation to that about ego and defining ego very specifically and how you mean it because yep. you know like it's such a misinterpreted thing. But anyway, I don't know if that detracts from where we want to go right now. We can come back to that. We can. We can okay. Right. Back to that. Cool. Back to the Thank you. So uh, I had come across the enneagram in two thousand and three when. Um, uh, and it, it was part of the the schizophrenic process. Uh, and here I am on my spiritual journey. I had taken initiation and, you know, like the Bhajana Kriya, somehow the emotional experience is that when we get initiation, we have reached the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, you know, welcome to, welcome to the real <laughs> Um, so, so you know, had I like jumped into uh, what I didn't experience, uh, what I didn't really expect would would happen, but um, I experience, I I did go through a very dark phase of doubt uh, about everything, uh, while still continuing to chant. My <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, it was a very dark time. It was, uh, you know, mm. two years of just like, you know, waking up in the middle of this middle of my sleep and like, like, what is really happening to me? Um, and uh, and in that process of uh, of also uh, studying the Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, somehow at that time I I just uh, I just decided to. Uh, I just said I'm just going to just take sh- shelter of the Srimad Bhagavatam and let let the Bhagavatam guide guide me this process. And what really struck me, two verses that uh, that time from the first canto um, was one was Tadvag Visargo Janataga Viplavo Yasmin Pratishlokam Abadavyatpi and. There was something about about the word honest. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was just that just that just hit hard. Um, and uh, 
and uh, the the honesty and the revolution there is the, there was there was just a there was just a very very strong connection mm -hmm. between those two words um and I, i i took that to be an internal revolution something that really needs to shift and change uh, and a revolution is never a it's never an easy process <laughs> uh and so it it I, uh, so it it sort of made sense to me what was happening internally and the second verse that was uh that was very helpful was uh, was the verse nashtaprayeshu badreshu natyam bhagavata sevaya uh and so i i realized that nashtaprayeshu badreshu the uh the stepping into that that tricky territory of of uh the abadras actually just like walking through it, it needs to be uh <laughs> you know, usually we sp speak about anarthanavritti as this oh my god this, this is a long thing that you know you don't know how many lifetimes you and somehow like for us we are just hoping every day that we can bypass that emotionally <laughs> mm. you know and i i realized that there has to be a certain willingness and uh, an openness to step into that um and that's a shift in mindset and attitude mm um that really needed to happen that i can't avoid this process so i have to embrace it i don't know where it's going to take me <laughs> uh but at least the bhagavatam says that when you do come out from the other side <laughs> <laughs> you have you have nishta <laughs> uh but the, uh, but i i also understood that uh the reason why nishta appears the way it does is because anartha nivritti uh alongside the anarthas leaving you it also makes you <laughs> you very clearly recognize that you are not the cause of your anarthas leaving you <laughs> mm. true so so when krishna gets you from point a to point b yeah it's also important how he gets you there because <laughs> the attitude when you do land on the other side is is very very different mm. so um that's what led me to um to go inwards and uh in a couple of conversations with very senior mentors and i won't mention names uh uh for the sake of confidentiality in the relationship. Yes. They were actually uh, looking into the enneagram. Uh and these are very these are people that are very uh advanced Vaishnavas I would say. And uh uh they had used the enneagram as a way of counseling but also for understanding themselves. It was like very hush hush so I I I received a recommendation to maybe twice again Krishna, Krishna sends that message a couple oh, of from different places so so that's when um I I opened the book um and this was you know Don Riso Ras Hudson uh who were at that time the preeminent teachers of the enneagram and their backgrounds were very interesting Don Riso had spent 20 years in a Jesuit church uh and ras uh, hudson had done a lot of work uh, with uh you know with uh, gi gurjeev uh and and uh, what i in understanding them i i realized that even if they were on different paths something about their commitment to the inner journey was very pure 
Um, and so I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm, this is totally random, but <clears throat> this is so embarrassing because I mentioned it last week also. Something about seeing someone come to an inner journey is very um, attractive. And <laughs> I'm so embarrassed to say this. I've been I've been rewatching the Avatar: Last Airbender with a friend who's never seen it before. And there's this one character, Zuko, who goes from like the bad guy to the good guy by the end of the series. And that journey is just like so, so beautiful to me. It's, it's kind of embarrassing to share that, but anyway, I just wanted to amplify that point, whether it's within tradition or not, when you see someone, even a story character committed to a journey of inner transformation, it's very appealing. Yeah, that's, that's I just wanted to amplify uh, The best way I can say, I can put that is there's some purity to the intent. Mm. Many times, uh, the conclusion, and they're still on a journey to arrive at at a conclusion. For some of us, the conclusion has been given. We perhaps sometimes we maybe accidentally fell into it. Mm. <laughs> uh, but uh, but we, even for us, uh, we, we we are lucky, and maybe we will have to rediscover Krishna consciousness in a deeper way. And that's still our inner journey. Mm. Um, so that was appealing, and so uh, that's when I I um, started to dabble into the enneagram. But it was exciting to like understand the different personality types, and you know I have a have a mind for psychology, so you know I it, it became it became intellectual sense gratification more than sure. me. Um, and like typing other people and like <laughs> it's, it's anyway it's. Uh, my own immaturity uh and then there was a second wave in 2006 2007 when i was going through this uh inter internal decision making uh complexity and and that, at that time the enneagram showed up again <laughs> and at this time my reaction was ah, i don't want to be i don't want to read this i don't <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to see this because it was showing things about myself that I had to look at. Oh, true. And that hurts. Uh, it's like, ah, you know. Uh, and then you also recognize, well, something here is true. <laughs> you know, C.S. Lewis, I, I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Uh, you know, if you are looking for comfort, you will never find the truth. Mm. If you're looking for truth, you will eventually find comfort. <laughs> mm. So, uh, there was something there that was that was uh, that I had to really look at again. So, so I went back and and I reopened and I really like took a, a deep dive in understanding my own uh, ego's complexity. And uh, um, and then in the ashram, so this is the third part of the, of the journey. Uh, when I was in the ashram, um, and we had you know. At, at one point in time, we had 21 brahmacharis staying at the Bhakti Center. Wow. I remember those days because I would visit on occasion. And so we we were actually left with like, well, how do we care? How do we really, how do we, uh, we were not trained in any for, sort of formal counseling. And we also recognized that um, people are coming from very different backgrounds, very different experiences, perhaps even trauma. Um, uh, I I know that I I had <laughs> I had some painful experiences. Dude, life is trauma, but we'll come to that on another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, so, and then the the ashram becomes a way in which all that trauma actually plays out. <laughs> yeah, and also mm. because the ashram, the ashram is a very complex environment. You are, um, you are, uh, the ego has not gone away, but you're denying things that the ego actually so strongly craves for, and mm. add a layer of the trauma to it, then. Just don't know, like, and so you see, it's it's very complex. And uh, when I saw the complexity, both in myself and and in other fellow ashramites, uh, I didn't have, I didn't know where to start, how to work through all of it. Mm -hmm. So as a team, uh, the leadership of the ashram, we got together and we felt like you know it'll be important for us to get trained in something that helps us. Uh, with ourselves and other uh, to, to really care for other people and so all the research that had gone into understanding the enneagram uh, from 2003 to 2010 we felt like um this would be a very good place for us to like spend some time really invest and understand and so um between hari prasad myself yogi we, yeah, we each went to about went through about two hundred hours of training. Wow! And uh, and then from there, it was just organic. To your question, Jai Jagannath, about how did this start? As we understood the system, the framework, and uh, we started to teach um, um, the Enneagram alongside the Gita, so it was never independent. Um, like you would have programs like. Gita night and with it, it also came like an enneagram sort of report or how did that work? So, so we we uh, we had charted out a journey and we, uh, the the idea was uh, it was called excavating your ego, mm. and the end of the journey was basically leaving people um, at a place where they can actually step into the Gita through Arjuna's shoes. Like, what happens when the ego is challenged and why is it challenged? So. So, so that was that was how we had structured the the journey, um, and so the enneagram became a very uh, powerful framework that had so many overlaps with the Gita. I mean, it, it's uh, it's amazing uh, that really uh, helped us speak a language and give people very tangible experiences about their suckness. That then opened the gates for them to uh, inquire spiritually. Uh, wow. That just grew very organically. Um, their company started inviting us to uh, to come and uh, you know speak to their teams and do workshops for them. And uh, then people started visiting the ashram from that uh, from from organizations, leaders of organizations. So it became a very organic. Uh, way to to in to bring people and introduce them to the Gita, who otherwise wouldn't necessarily be interested. Right, and that success wasn't met with like necessarily like open arms. I from what I know, uh, and I would like to get to that part. But I want before we do that, I would I would be interested to hear because our our time is a little bit shorter today. The sort of religious roots of the Enneagram, which I think could be it, it would be interesting for me at least because. At the at the Bhakti Center where I was serving, a lot of um, devotees there were started to get into it or were into it, 
And I think I have a little bit of that contrarian spirit. So if I see too many people into one thing, I'm like, I'm just doing the opposite. I don't, I don't even care. And so I never allowed myself to really try to understand or step into it. And also, you know, I'm a kind of old school training devotee. So Dharma approach to Kaita Vatra You know, this is cheating Dharma. That sort of mentality is very strong in me. Although I'm open because of the sort of things that we hope to do, even through our like our rise. But I would like to hear, I think it would be interesting and important for people to hear the sort of religious roots that you were kind of sharing with me with the Enneagram. Yeah. And yeah, let's start, let's just start with that. Yeah, it's funny, like just like with any um any powerful system. Mm. Uh, even religion for that matter yeah you know, it's stripped away from its roots and you know it, we, we call it appropriation in you know modern terms right. so appropriated the enneagram has also experienced a, a fair bit of appropriation mm. and um, um when it finds its way into the mainstream it feels like a very uh, uh, a personality type that you can put somebody in a box and um the the roots of the enneagram uh, actually lie in mystical traditions. Uh, yeah. It's um, um, and I can explain why. Um, also, you'll see a strong whiff of, uh, and this has been acknowledged, a strong influence of Vedic culture in uh, in the system as well. Uh, but the focus was, uh, but the 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 known roots of the enneagram, uh, at least, uh, date back as far as. Um, you know, ancient Egypt, and uh, then to the, you know, the desert fathers who, uh, who were using, who actually were looking at repeated patterns in terms of how they forget God. <laughs> I could write a book on that too. <laughs> and and uh, what they found was uh, that there were nine different patterns. Mm. Uh, nine different ways in which they uh, there was loss of there was loss of presence from the soul, and uh, there was uh, there was a pattern to it. There was mm. there was a system to how it showed up, and uh, so that's the that's what we know as the origins of uh, the enneagram. And of course, there were conversations happening between the Greeks and I mean you know these these cultures talked. Um, mm. and, um, and so the name Enneagram is is Greek. Ennea stands for nine, and gram is, is a figure, a nine-pointed figure. Mm. Um, and uh, the the I, the purpose, the original purpose of the Enneagram was to understand these patterns as suffering. Mm. And the words that the word that the desert fathers used was called passion. Right, uh, passion of the Christ, or the idea is that the, the, the word passion we use it very differently uh, today, uh, but it's similar to what the Gita says, the mode of passion. Mm. Right, uh, it creates suffering, and there is the suffering has a specific pattern, mm. um, and uh, so it's identifying the patterns of the ego that keeps us locked into our own suffering. I find that extremely fascinating because just philosophically from a bhakti perspective, at the root of suffering, we say is Bhagavat Vaimukya or just like being turned away from God or in more simple language, forgetting God. 
And so this, they hear about a system that has identified ways in which we forget God, and that actually being the root of suffering makes a very fascinating connection between this work of Enneagram and what we hear and like our bhakti tradition. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what I found, uh, again, in hearing from Don Riso and, and Russ Hudson uh, and uh, <laughs> their research into the roots, uh, again, uh, they had done a lot of work to really understand its origins. Uh, how they spoke about this was very similar to Anarthanavriti. When you know the repeated patterns, mm. you know how to walk back. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's uh, it's very interesting when you uh, put the layers of, um, you know, when we talk about Prarabdha Karma, and we typically emotionally at least talk about Prarabdha Karma as things that we need to experience, meaning from the outside, outside. Right. Of but interestingly, Prarabdha Karma is our Varna. Right. And Prarabdha Karma is also the fixations that are so deep that we are carrying. <sighs> past uh, that uh, are so abstract, but I have such a force uh, in terms of how it's uh, affecting our decisions, our relationship with Krishna, and our relationships with the devotee. Um, that when we understand that box, that black box, um, it, helps us, uh, it helps us take full responsibility. So again, yeah. this is not a substitute for our relationship with Krishna, uh, but it it is uh, it can be a very helpful uh, framework for the process of anarthanavritti. Mm. You know, one thing I'm hearing in my old school training, you know, bhakta voice, um, <laughs> you know, everything is in the name, everything is in Srimad Bhagavatam, yeah. and you know, you kind of get this sense where yeah if you just chant if yeah. you and i like to say that i don't know anyone who's just doing that so i don't think it's a good argument <laughs> but you know there's kind of this sense like why do we need this why do we need that because you know if we we just chant then automatically you know that word comes up so much automatically yes. an arjnavriti would come through or, or these defects in 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 the schisms of the soul so to speak will be rectified whereas when I'm hearing from you, it makes sense to me that let me excavate the ego. You used that language earlier so that I can see it for what it is and I'll know how to work with it. And then I can more easily transcend it. Yeah. So how do you, I'm sure you must get this doubt or maybe this doubt came up when you were first um, interfacing with this. And how do you answer that? So um, the way I've understood it, <laughs> And this also, uh, what shed a lot of light to this was uh, in 2004 and 2005, I went through, uh, I, I obtained a series of lectures that are now available in public, but at that time they weren't, uh, both by Ravindra Surupavu, one called Spiritual Foundation for Reform, mm. and the other one called The Cure of Souls, mm. understanding, pathology, understanding pathologies in, a, in an institution. And it, <laughs> it was remarkable. It was actually, what it did to me was, it just uh, it just demystified <laughs> the, the complexities of what an earthenarithi in an institution can look like. Mm. And you know, as Father Rohr, uh, uh, Richard Rohr, who we know, talks about, who also was one of the preeminent pioneering, pioneering teachers in the Enneagram, he says, right, in the process of avoiding necessary suffering, 
we create a lot of unnecessary suffering. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I got to write that one down too. <laughs> it, it's very powerful. And again, he, he, he says how if we don't transform our suffering, we will inevitably transmit it. And I saw myself doing that. Mm. And here's where the important thing is. When I transmit suffering, that amounts to offenses. Mm. Both in my relationship with the devotees, but also offenses in terms of um, really accepting the process. Um, so everything will come when we offenselessly chant the holy name. I'm not talking about pure chanting. <laughs> right, right, right. This is not the offensive part first. Talking about nama bhas, right? Like it's it's just it's it's being it's 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 our effort. And so uh, I recognized that a big part of Namabhas was uh, was uh, working on the anarthas, systematically, mm -hmm. relentlessly uh, working on the anarthas. That the, the word tivrena bhakti yogena, the word tivra uh, has has this emotional sense of relentlessness. It has like it's it's sure. like you know it's sharp. Uh, you don't take your eyes off, <laughs> even for a moment. Uh, and to, uh, my aspiration, even today, is to approach my japa from that point, just offenselessly chanting the holy names. And what I recognized again was the repeated patterns that took took me away from it. Mm. In my in my relationships, in things that uh, you know occupy my mind, my insecurities that come in, you know, sitting down to chant japa and. There they are. They show up. Hi. <laughs> and the third thing that it did was uh, that I really understood my prison. Mm. Um, and this was a very uh, powerful experience as well. I wish I can go back there time and again. Um, your prayer, your call to Krishna actually becomes more real. <laughs> Mm. See the gravitational force of your ego, you see it very clearly, uh, the specific patterns and your absolute inability to break free of it. And that just uh, makes your, <laughs> you really want to cry out. <laughs> um, I, is that a rhetorical question? You know, you know, hearing this, and this statement, in the process of avoiding necessary suffering, we invite a lot of unnecessary suffering. I'm thinking of another C.S. Lewis quote because I'm a fan of his. Also, I grew up with C.S. Lewis reading him. And one a, a quote of his that I really like from his Screwtape Letters, which is an amazing book, which is very similar to this Enneagram sort of conversation of ways in which the mind deviates us from remembrance of God. And, and toward the end of the book, he says, courage is not only one of the virtues, but it's the essence of all virtues at the testing point. That's right. And so hearing you speak now, I'm having the courage to like lean into that. Like if you really want your prayer to be authentic and come from a place of, it's like, but it sounds kind of scary. And it sounds like one needs a sufficient amount of courage to really do that. And I guess this is kind of tangential, but Maybe your story, just in general, how do you inspire people to get the courage to do that? Because it doesn't, it doesn't seem like something someone would necessarily step into if they didn't have to. And it also, it also seems like it requires like massively deep 
levels of self-understanding, you know, to really, really know, like, and be able to understand the intricacies of your of your ego mask, like, and it it, it almost seems like because the narrative of it seems like this is a, the whole process is very conscious and very intentional yes. you know and and like right. and like i another scary thing <laughs> is it is it i i wonder how many people in today's world which where people are so distracted so like weak and j just being capable of that level of like self-understanding and then the courage to like push against it and it's it seems like a very elevated thing um it's it is um on one level you can say it's elevated and on another level i would say i think and this is this is where i consider uh my share of responsibility if you could call it uh, I want to create pockets where the, those kinds of sangha is those kinds of uh, those we create spaces where we can step into from a point of view of sangha, from a point of view of conversations, and from a point of view of deliberate practice, mm. uh, bringing that kind of uh, tivra, that kind of intentionality to our bhakti. Because in that process, this is the beauty. Krishna's Krishna reveals himself. You know, it's like layers, like it's like whales that actually lift. And I feel like Anathanaruti, as much as it's said to be like, oh my God, this is like so difficult. To me, the intentional part of Anathanaruti is the dark night of the soul. Mm. And Krishna's present in the dark night of the soul in a very mystical way. It's like, well, it's so painful, but yet I can't quit. <laughs> There is a, there is a, there is a, you, you, what you call even before developing taste for the holy name, you actually develop the taste for the struggle to chant offenselessly. Mm. And that's the taste that we want to build. The insights that come when we step into our own egos with that kind of intentionality. And this is where the Enneagram has been incredibly helpful is when you see it, when you shed light, when you have a language. Uh, when you, when we can touch our own suffering, mm. right? When we can touch our own suffering, um, we are not afraid. We are sad, perhaps, but that sadness is a is a very crucial part. Man, how did I get myself into this? Right? Like, how did I leave Krishna? <laughs> Why did I do it in the first place? Right. That sadness is a very, it's a, it's a very healing um, sadness. It's a, and and uh, to me, that journey is uh, you experience Krishna's presence in incredible ways. <laughs> your your smiling about it makes it a little bit more convincing. <laughs> I'm also reminded of Durdhaivam Indrishami Hajani Na Anuragaha. You know that mind from Sri Shashakam yeah. were speaking to this idea. Um, I had two other things. On your, on your website, you have this sort of uh, slogan or motto, a world without mask, I think. Yes. I, have, I have it here. And um, so I'm finding that interesting in light of this conversation, because it's like 
a lot of conversation around understanding what the mask is and and that way you can kind of like deal with it in a healthy way but, but the slogan on the website is a world without mask so what is the intention of that statement in light of like what we've been discussing thus far um thank you um it's also very appropriate for the times that <laughs> Absolutely. You are like, okay, you know, we are not making a political statement. We are not. Even if you were, you write on the money on that one for sure. Our world, our whole world, practically everything about it is so fake, from the social media to the movies to the politics to like literally everything. So it's not. It's a fair statement, objectively speaking. It's a it's a way that when we learn how to talk about our egos constructively, mm. see that the ego our ego doesn't have the same hold that it has otherwise. We take the ego so seriously. <laughs> True. <laughs> Because it scares us. <laughs> it mm. tells you, well, what would you be if I weren't there with you? Right? Like that's the that's the inner talk. Uh, but when we learn to see, my God, like, uh, and this is again something that the Enneagram offers a language to talk about our egos, and learning how to laugh about it, mm. and to repeat it. Ah, oh, there I go again. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs> you know, I just and being able to, in the middle of a conversation, and it happens uh, between my wife and I. <laughs> we, you know, I. She said something. I responded, and five minutes later, I said, "You know, the reason why I said that is because I want you to be. I wanted you to notice me in a specific way, and like it's embarrassing. But then you learn to call it. We both laugh at it, <laughs> mm. and uh, you practice this calling yourself out, calling the ego out every time it shows up. Um, and uh, that's what we mean by a world without masks. Is learning when we learn to talk about the masks, you see the masks don't have the same effect. Mm. And sometimes the masks are necessary because um, we are traveling, we are traversing very tricky terrains. Um, we we don't want to be harmed or hurt. <laughs> um, and so we we put on the mask. Uh, to navigate complexity, but when mm. the mask when the mask is never taken off, we start to believe we are the masks. Mm. That reminds me of the movie The Mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, dude! I loved that movie growing up as a kid, and you know, the more he would wear the mask, the more difficult it was to take it off and to realize that he was an entity apart from the mask. Right. So, and you also get addicted to what the mask gives you. Right. Right. Uh, the so this goes back to the question that uh, you asked, Karuna Prabhu, about how do you define the ego? The ego is a, is a, and as Prabhupada defined it, false. The false ego. Ego uh, at its core is identity. That's what right. it is. Right. Right. The false ego is a false identity. Yeah. Usually, the the way we use it in our community often is as hubris. Yes. So that's why it becomes like this whole dangerous thing. But more fundamentally, it's kind of it's a sense of identity. It's 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 just a sense of identity. Now, what I have done is projected it on something that's false. Mm. Um, and uh, that's the you know bayam dutiya viniveshitasya So the forgetfulness happens. Mm. 
but then when that happens, then uh, <laughs> I am wounded deep down. And I feel like I have to complete myself. I have to become God. In comes the ego. Like now, mm. now um, the, the ego is the false ego's sole purpose is to play God. Mm. And we do it in a specific way. <laughs> right? We have our own flavors for it. <laughs> so so uh, that's the, uh, so uh, we become attached. So now here's the tricky territory. Uh, so the ego, the, what it needs for it to survive is validation. Uh. And, uh, you know, endless. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. uh, and all possible ways, like small ways, big ways, the way spiritual ways, <laughs> you know, non-spiritual ways. Uh, it's like this uh, octopus with tentacles that's just like drawing out validation from people. Like that's that's its business, and the validation is necessary because without that, we would never feel like God. Mm. It's pseudo worship. Right, um, and that's the only way the ego can survive. So, um, so what the enneagram shows is specific kinds of validation that each of the numbers need. <laughs> and when it doesn't come that way, then we 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 are triggered. Mm. Mm. Very fascinating. Just you we know. Oh, sorry. I just because our time is very minimal. I want Karuna to ask his thing. Uh, but we only have a little bit of time left with you. And I would like to hear about your relationship with this. Uh, who is it? Don Russell, Rod Hudson. I, I'm, I'm, no, I butchered the name there. I'm an American, so we do that. Um, I'd like to hear about your relationship with them a little bit, which was kind of something interesting that you shared with me also. But before you get to that, Karuna Avatar, I'm sorry. I just wanted to, because our time is less. Just. Just something which is occurring to me, and I have other thing which I'm also very curious about, but what is the necessity of becoming in, you know, to, to bring up uh, Richard Rohr's idea of being, becoming thoroughly acquainted with the ego and developing the ego in order to be able to really you know, renounce it and eventually put it aside. Amazing question. Yeah. Falling upward, right? This is falling the... upward. I got, I have to say, I practically got all my friends into that book, young friends, particularly at the moment when they were transitioning out of the ashram. And it's interesting because that's when you also said you read that book. And that's when that book was recommended to me. And I just want to say, just experientially to Karuna Avatar, that I definitely see its viability. Just and my own ashram experience of not like joining and not really having an identity. So like anything it was like, okay, I'll take this. And then trying to build your identity within the institution. So wanting to be a sannyasi, wanting to be a GBC, wanting to be the best Kirtania. And so the work that you should have did before you join gets done in this space. Uh -huh. And so the time that you're supposed to be making spiritual advancement is actually getting co-opted by this sort of material building and validation of the ego. Anyway, just on an experiential level, I just, really resonate with Richard Ward's idea there. But um, yeah, maybe you have an answer to this, um, Rasanath. The, uh, the, the idea of the two halves of lives, and this is where I think Prabhupada also really started to think about Varashram mm. towards, the, towards the end of his manifest pastimes. 
um, again, uh, we see so much in the Chaitanya Charitamrita about Mahaprabhu, you know, that's not where, that, that's pure bhakti. Right? Uh, but Varnashram has a place in, and specifically a very big place in Anathana, Anathana Vritti stage. Mm. The reason for that is, again, it's not a substitute for Krishna consciousness, but the ego um, can't let go if it's not healthy. Boom. It can't. Yeah. It can't. Um, and so, and so the, 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 the reason why the Varnas and the Ashrams work the way they do is the first part of life is building up to a place where the ego is healthy. And that doesn't mean, you know, it's, 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 uh, it understands its place. It's very aware. It also knows it needs to die. Mm. Right. Um, because it has experienced small deaths in the pro in, in along the way and, and has processed it. Right. So, so then when, so when it's, when it, when it becomes healthy, it knows that's where it, that's where it, uh, it that's what's going to happen. Then it can't do it for itself. You need outside help. And that's where Krishna comes in. And it comes in many different ways. It comes in, you know, we fall from a position. <laughs> I know that way very uh, well. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> I have suffered. We, but then when we don't have the framework of understanding it and processing it, we will actually fight it and resist it. And defend it so strongly that we—that's that is unnecessary suffering. Mm, that right, right. Is unnecessary suffering, right? So the necessary suffering is the death of the ego. The unnecessary suffering is the resistance to the death. <laughs> amazing, amazing, amazing. My 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 Maharaj gave Mahatma Prabhu gave me an instruction recently where he said that everything that I'm saying right now, like everything that he talks about, is based on been there done that and then he said to me but now you need to go out there and do that you know <laughs> it's true um no. and so the ashrams are also generated it's like they are the varnas and the ashrams they are they are created in a way that helps us actually build a healthy ego so that yeah we, we can let them go that we can let it go but when we do it incorrectly <laughs> Right, uh, and we do it in a skewed way, and this was my realization. When you are a brahmachari, when your psychological system is actually saying you have to become more independent, <laughs> but your institutional system tells you you have to become more dependent, you're torn apart. You're you're schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. So the timing of all of these things have to be very. Uh, the guidance and the timing, uh, all of that have to fall in place for us to, to be able to, in a healthy way, uh, be able to relinquish the ego. I wish we had another hour with you because you're just dropping yeah. a lot of wonderful yeah. insight, but we don't. And I would like to hear just about this last relationship because it's interesting for me, you know, coming from, I would say, a more orthodox way of thinking. You know, if you're not a devotee, you're a bad association. And even if you are a devotee, you're probably bad association too. I'm gonna to have to like, you know, analyze you Damn, first. <laughs> bro. <laughs> you know, orthodox, you know, everyone's basically bad association if they're not Srila Prabhupada or, or you know, not some like advanced soul. 
Uh, and I obviously, like I said, I'm an orthodox thinker, so I I still think like that largely, but I have opened myself up to um, trying to appreciate truth wherever I see someone reaching yeah. for it. And um, I think that's healthy, at least for me on a personal level. So I, I was kind of, and I know your time is last, so you only can give a summary of this, but your relationship with these, uh, how do you say their name? Don? Don Riso and, and Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. Russ Hudson. Yeah, you're, you had an interesting relationship with them that you were sharing with me. Yeah. I'd like to hear that to so, conclude. So to, to talk about the orthodoxy, uh, I'm very, I was very, uh, I think a lot of people don't know this about me. I think uh, many people think that I'm just a, a liberal and, you know, <laughs> they're doing this thing. You know, I, I don't know what he's doing. I've heard comments about, like, even like, I, you know, it's fallen down. Oh my um, God! I internally, uh, um, I I'm a conservative actually. <laughs> yeah, I know it well. I uh, uh, and so it's it's been very helpful for me to actually like okay what 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 I what am I what am I taking up is this mm. and so I what I've also appreciated over time is all of those criticisms have only been helpful because it just reminds me. Um, of uh, maybe the place that it came from wasn't necessarily always sensitive and and, uh, and uh, understanding of the truth, but uh, I've always tried to take all of those criticisms as Krishna's way of telling me that I have to be careful. Mm. And they have basis because right. in Krishna consciousness, a lot of people substitute other things for and it takes them away from their devotional life. It's, it's tragic. Um, for me, um, we have uh, navigated it. Um, very thoughtfully, <laughs> try to, um, uh, without any sense of bravado, mm. and always having people around us to uh, um, to tell us, okay, if you're going too much, well, how should we how should we pull back? So without mm. the proper support structure and system in place. Um, but uh, my relationship with Don Riso and Russ Hudson, when we when we contacted them to do this workshop and learn from them. Um, they asked a little more about our backgrounds. And so we talked about our tradition and our monastic background. And, and they basically, uh, they were very enthusiastic. They, they drastically reduced the fees for us and, and uh, they invited us to come in and learn. And in the process, uh, we, we also developed a relationship where we invited the devotees to do Kirtan at the Enneagram Institute. Uh, mm. And, uh, Don Riso specifically, he passed away a few years ago. He was a very pioneering teacher in the Enneagram. As I said earlier, he was a Jesuit and um, a very pure person who had done a lot of work on himself. And he um, he always um, encouraged us to, he, he kept telling us that we have chosen a very good path. Um, and he always talked about the four paths that the Enneagram offers. And the four paths were the way of action. He called it the way of action, uh, the way of knowledge. Um, then he said the way of meditation and the way of devotion. <laughs> wow, that sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, he, 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 that's, uh, that was his terminology. And, and uh, that was also something that attracted us because we felt so much overlap. This is right. Um, but and he he always encouraged us and um, and told us that we were on the right path that we always needed to keep our lives pure. Uh, 
message that he, you know, he personally gave me. And just before he passed away, we had gone to see him because um, we received a lot from from his uh, wisdom. Uh, um, he was uh, he was an amazing human being. And so when we were there, he actually said that you have been given a lot of gifts in your spiritual path. And uh, I would love for you, Hari Prasad was also there. He said, I would love for you to uh, teach the Enneagram. And this was actually the words of a dying man. <laughs> ah. uh, and uh, I felt very privileged because they're very, very conservative about who they ask. Uh, to teach, and so I felt like there was there was some blessings that came. Wow! Um, so uh, it was a very it, is, it was and continues to be a very uh, very sweet relationship. It has only enhanced uh, my devotion to Krishna. Uh. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> that in short is my relationship with that. Thank you so much, Rasna. This was, um, wow. I know this would be an interesting conversation, but I'm actually taken aback how enriching I was personally finding this conversation. Absolutely. Okay. Having, I'm having a, a pretty bad allergy issue, but this whole hour I was just like, I forgot about it because I was just like, this is really interesting stuff. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for uh, giving me a platform to share. I've never, as I said, I've never really shared this very openly. Um, uh, being sensitive to to perception and readiness, and, and uh, also being very careful about uh, whether it's uh, my ego's way of wanting to prove <laughs> and uh, you know uh, and show people who criticize what this is all. Mm. I don't I don't want to play any of those games. I, I, uh, but at the same time, it's it's very rich. And, uh, so thank you for for helping me share the, the richness of what I have received, really. Okay. Thank you for the willingness, Prabhu, to come and be with us. Um, everyone, if you would like to get in touch with us, ariseheroicman at gmail.com, at ariseheroicman on Instagram. You can also find uh, Rasanath Prabhu and his amazing business and organization, Upbuild NYC, right? Upbuild, you can go to upbuild.com. Or upbuild mm -hmm. NYC, they, they, they will take you to the same web page. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Hare you. Krishna. Please join us again next week. Uh, Prabhu, you could just stay on just for a sec. I'm just going to end the broadcast. Yeah. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.